Tonight we'll look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and part of chapter 10, but let me ask you to turn to chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 9. In chapter 8, the people asked for a king. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been here, so it's a little bit of review. They ask for a king and Samuel takes it to God and we're wondering what God's going to do. God, remember, at the end of chapter 8, says, give them what they ask for. And at the beginning of chapter 9, without warning, the scene shifts to talk about a guy who's looking for some donkeys. And this is God's way of introducing Israel's first king who would be established by the people, but, but really by God, by God's appointment. And this story doesn't seem to be very compelling, except that, as we'll see, God is working behind the scenes to lead Saul and the prophet Samuel to meet and then to have Saul appointed and anointed as king. So I'm not going to read the, the entire passage that I'm going to cover tonight, but, but I'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 21 and then we'll cover the rest as we go through. So let me begin with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorash, the son of Aphia, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and rise. Go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. And then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us return or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. He said to him, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come and let us go to the seer, for he who is called a prophet now is formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up the slope to the city, and as they did, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered them and said, He is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter into the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore go up and you will find him at once. So they went up to the city. And as they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, 
About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Here we have God working behind the scenes to anoint Israel's first king. And we see from the very beginning that God is behind all of this. That God is the one who leads Israel to Saul and God leads Saul to be Israel's king. Now that might trouble us. We might have immediate objections because we know the rest of the story of Saul. But we need to recognize that the text doesn't predict a fall from grace by Saul. That is, that Saul actually turns away from God. It doesn't predict that. It doesn't even clue us in. You know, like when you're reading through John's epistle or John's gospel, he talks about uh, Judas Iscariot who held the money and this is the one who would betray our Lord. You see, he kind of predicts or, or expects that we should know that this is the same one that will eventually betray the Lord. But here in the text, it doesn't give us any inclination like that. Now, we know that because we know the end of the story. But, but here, God is behind it. And He is involved in the establishment of this king, King Saul, who would eventually turn wicked. But the text, I think, makes it clear that God's hands are all over this event. God's hands are involved in establishing Saul as king over Israel. And we should not be troubled by that. In verses 1-14, through 14, we see that God prepares Saul to meet Samuel. Now, God's going to prepare both sides of it. It's amazing how God works this out. He often does this. And I'll give you another example later. But, but God is going to prepare Saul to meet Samuel, the prophet. And God's kind of going to prepare Samuel to meet Saul. And then they're actually going to meet. Here in verses 1-14, through 14, He prepares Saul to meet Samuel. We're first introduced to him in verses 1 and 2. We're, we're told about his background. We're actually introduced to his father first in verse 1. And what we know from Saul's background is that he was not born into a regal family. Remember, there is no kingly line at this point. He was actually born into a minority group in Israel. In verse 21, it says, How could this be me? Right? I am of the smallest tribe of all of Israel, Benjamin. And inside of that tribe, I'm of the smallest family clan. So, if you're going to pick somebody to rule over everyone in all of Israel, it doesn't make sense to pick someone who's from the smallest tribe and the smallest family in the smallest tribe. It doesn't make sense. And so, he comes from a, an unlikely background, we would say. And he's introduced in the text by means of his father. Saul's father is a man named Kish, and he's a man of wealth. And we know this because he at least has servants, and he has donkeys, and, uh, and that was not usual it wasn't the normal uh for for everyone across the board uh, across the board we also know in verse 2 that Saul was a farmer 
who was tall, dark, and handsome. Right? From his shoulders upward, he was taller than everyone. It sounds like he had a really long neck. But actually, I think what it means there is that you know, everybody else just came up to his shoulders and he was that much taller. And, and the text makes it clear that there was not anyone in all of Israel who was more handsome than this man, Saul. So he is tall, at least tall and handsome, probably dark too, knowing his background right from Israel. So, so what God's doing is He's tracking down His man, leading him to a place where he will be uh, first told that he's going to be the king and then anointed as king by that same Samuel but God's tracking him down. And the way He's doing that is by almost leading Saul with a carrot. You know, and the carrot for Saul is these lost donkeys of his father. Saul knows that his task, task is to go find these donkeys. And that's what happens in verses 3-10. through 10. He sets out on this mission to find his father's assets. These donkeys, part of his farm. And according to verse 20, he would be searching for three days. He looks in Ephraim, verse 4. He looks in Shalashah. He looks in Sha'alim. And he even looks in Benjamin. He comes to Zuf, and he still can't find them. And after being gone for a few days, he realizes, you know, my father might stop worrying about the donkeys at some point, and he's going to start worrying about us, that is, Saul and his servants that are with him. And so he, we better start heading back, because I don't want my father to be, to be worried about us. But before they go home, the servant has an idea in verse 6. And he says, you know, before we go, the seer is not too far from here. Why don't we go talk to him and see what God has for us? Now, the seer, as you see in verse 9, is just another name for prophet. It's the old name for prophet. He said, you know, during this time, that's what they would have called it, the seer. We now call it a prophet. And, uh, and so it makes sense to talking about Samuel here. He says, so let's go see the prophet and um, ask him what he knows about our lost donkeys. But before they can go up and do such a search for and talk to the prophet, they needed to bring something with them. It was the custom of that day that in order to talk to a prophet, in order to ask him for a word from God, you had to bring a gift with you. Uh, in verse 6, uh, verse 7, Saul said after the servant made the suggestion, he said, but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the seer, the prophet? What are we going to bring to him? We don't have any bread and there's no present that we have to bring to him. So what could we possibly give him that would compel him to even listen to us? It would it would not be customary for us to go without anything. And, and the... And I think this is where God's providence comes into play. God works it out so that the servant of Saul just happens to have some money on hand. They had used up everything else that would have been able to be given to the prophet as a gift. And he has really the perfect amount of money, a fourth of a shekel of silver that would have been adequate, uh, an adequate gift for the prophet. And so this obstacle is overcome by God providentially allowing the servant to have this gift to be able to give to Samuel. And then in verses 11-14, through 14, Saul finds Samuel. It's one thing to have a gift for the prophet, but a gift will do no good unless you can actually find the prophet. So this is key. God has to work out the details so that the prophet is here at the right time. Can't you know kind of call ahead or text him to see if he's where he's going to be, meet him up somewhere. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of uh, what we could say... 
um, a, a lucky chance, if we saw it from the world's perspective, that, that Saul would just happen to come upon Samuel as he happens to be sacrificing in this place. This is not his home. He happens to be in Zuth at a high place where there would be an altar and he was sacrificing on behalf of these people. Yet God works out the details so that Saul is led to Samuel. And so God here is preparing Saul to meet Samuel. First, by causing his donkeys to run away. Second, by leading Saul and his servant to the city where Saul was sacrificing. And then third, by allowing them to have a proper gift to be able to give him. But there's something else that needs to happen if Saul is going to be appointed as king. And that is God not only must be preparing Saul to meet the prophet, but God needs to prepare the prophet to meet Saul. And that's what happens at the end of verse 14 to verse 17. At the end of verse 14 it says, As they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Just so happens that as they're walking into the city, they see this man and they say to him, Hey, do you know where the prophet is? And Saul says, I am the prophet. Samuel's coming down from the high place toward Saul. And the narrative stops here and tells us that God has been preparing Samuel for Saul. Notice verse 15. Now, a day before... So, you, you can kind of see the picture. If this were played out in a movie, you'd see Samuel coming to meet them. And just before they meet, you have a flashback to when God had been preparing Saul. And it just happened... Or Samuel... It just happens that a day earlier, God was saying to Samuel this, verse 16, Samuel, about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. See, God is showing a day before, He was working in Samuel to show him that Saul's coming. I'm going to send you a man. In other words, I'm the orchestra conductor. Okay, I'm going to bring everything together so that this works out perfectly according to my timing. I'm going to bring Samuel to you and Saul, I'm going to make you ready to receive him. And so God points Saul out to Samuel. This is very similar to, I think, what, what God did in the book of Acts with Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Right? You have God coming to Peter in a dream and telling him it's okay to eat these things. And really what I'm telling you is it's okay to have association with Gentiles. It's okay to take the Gospel to them. And at the same time, what's he doing with Cornelius? Right? He, he's talking to Cornelius and saying, hey, send for Peter. Tell him to come and speak to you guys. God's working out both sides of it so that it works out exactly as He wants. God is not... Uh, confined by any obstacles in this life. He controls it all. And here we see that happening. Well, in verses 18-21, through 21, we saw in our reading that Saul and Samuel meet. And Saul informs Saul, excuse me, Samuel informs Saul that Saul will be king. He says, don't worry about your donkeys, verse 20. They have been found. Here's what needs to occupy your mind at the end of verse 20. And it is that you are going to be the king of Israel. Now, where do I get that? Because it doesn't technically say that. It doesn't exactly say that in the text. And I would say two reasons. First, look at Saul's response in verse 21. So there's a couple of questions. We'll come back to that here in verse 20. That I think is a statement. He's basically saying, you're going to be king. But notice Saul's response in verse 21. 
Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest tribe of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the, all the families in the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me this way? What is Saul understanding about what Samuel has said? He recognizes that Samuel's saying something about him being a king. Saul recognizes that. And why would he think that? It's because of what Samuel says in verse twenty. At the end of the verse it says and for whom? Okay, so don't worry about your donkeys. Here's what you need to think about. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all for your, all your father's household? So those are the questions. And here, here's what he's saying. You know, you've seen it in the newspapers, haven't you? Israel has a desire to have a king rule over them. And who is it that they desire to have? Saul? And the answer is you. Is it not you and your family's household, your family line, that they are desiring? And what I'm telling you here, on behalf of God, Samuel's saying, is that you are the man. You are the king. You're going to be anointed king. The New Living Translation puts it this way. You and your family, the end of verse 21, uh, the end of verse 20, you and your family are the focus of all of Israel's hopes. You know, their hopes are in a king. We want a king just like the other nations because, you know, he goes out to battle for them. He does all sorts of great things. He, he, he represents them. And he says, Samuel says to him, you are their hopes. You are their king. Now, just imagine yourself in Saul's shoes. Saul has not gone on a campaign to earn the respect and the votes of the people. He's never even lived in a country where there was a king, so he doesn't even know what this exactly is going to look like. And yet Samuel comes to him as he's doing something, he's just kind of minding his own business, trying to find his donkeys. And, and all of a sudden, God's prophet says to him, you're going to be the king of Israel. And Saul can't believe it. Verse 21 how could this happen, right? I'm, I'm from the smallest tribe, from the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. Why do you talk about me being the king? That doesn't even make sense. Now, if we recognize where Saul's ancestors have come from, we, I think we might understand why Saul is so surprised here when he's told that he will be the king. It's not just his current situation that he's from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. But it's also that his tribal history has some really dark patches in it. What tribe was Saul from again? The tribe of Benjamin. And if you remember, it was only a few hundred years earlier that there was a Levite. And he was traveling through a town with his wife and he stayed at a house of a kind man who wanted him and his wife to be protected. But the man... of the men of the city where they were staying found out that there was a guest, an out-of-town guest that was staying in this Gibeonite man's house. And so they pounded on his door and demanded that they give him this Levite traveler. The homeowner offered his daughter instead, but they would not take her. And so the Levite decided to offer his wife. And they grabbed her and they raped her and beat her all night long. And when the Levite woke up the next morning, he found his wife laying face first in the doorway. He said, come on, honey, it's time to go. 
but she didn't move. She was dead. The Benjamites had killed her. Well, the Levite man was disgusted and enraged, and so he took the body of his wife home, and he cut her up into twelve pieces and sent her all over Israel with a note. And the note read like this, The Benjamites did this to my wife. And if this bothers you as it bothers me, then meet me at Mizpah tomorrow. And so they did. The leaders of each tribe assembled at Mizpah. And this Levite man who, whose wife was murdered told them how it all happened and said, So what do you want to do about these Benjamites? And they agreed. We need to get revenge on them. And so they got together a group of 400,000 Jews from the 11 tribes of Israel. And they lined up in battle against Benjamin. And they didn't want to destroy all of the Benjamites. They just wanted the ones who were responsible for this tragedy, this treacherous act. But the Benjamites didn't want to give up the people who did it. And so the Jews declared a civil war on their own brothers the Benjamites. And they went to battle. In the first two days, they were able to kill 1,000 Benjamites out of the 26,000 that there were. But the Benjamites were somehow able to kill 40,000 of the Jews. But on the third day, God sent them back into battle and they set up an ambush. And they drew out the Benjamites from their city the Benjamites thought they were winning, winning, so they started attacking this 350,000 Jews that, that they, they thought they were going to be able to win, just like they had done before. They'd kill some more Jews. But really, these 11 tribes had set up an ambush, and they sent 10,000 into the city while the Benjamites had gone away. And in the city, they killed every single woman and child. They killed every single adult, every single elderly person, all that was left were, were these 25,000 uh, Benjamite warriors that are far away from their camp now, and they realized what had, they had done. They, they were toast. And so they started to flee. And they, they were almost all killed. In fact, all of them were killed except for 600 men. And they're hiding out in a cave. And this resulted in a problem. Because now Israel had a tribe that was on the brink of its extinction. And if these men were going to cause their tribe to continue, if you have 600 men, how are they going to carry on their family name? How are they going to continue their family line? Well, they need a wife. They need a woman. They need, they need a wife. And so Israel recognized this. Part of the problem was that if the Benjamites married pagans, right, they could marry pagan women, non-Jewish women. That would be a disgrace to Israel, and nobody in Israel wanted to see them do that. And the other problem was that Israel decided, we will not give our daughters to you to marry because you are so despicable because of what you've done. We're not going to give our daughters. So they made a vow to God that we're not going to give our daughters. So they have a problem, don't they? They don't want these 600 men to die and just for the tribe to, to, to dissolve and, or to go extinct. And they don't also want them to go and marry 
foreign women and, and become a disgrace to all of Israel. And they, don't, they will not let them marry their own women. So they have a problem, don't they? But they also felt bad for Benjamin. And so they came up with a plan. You know, there was one group that didn't come out and fight with us when we called in all of the troops to, to stand up against Benjamin. And it was Jabesh Gilead. They didn't come to fight in the Civil War. And so Israel went and told the Benjamites, listen, Jabesh Gilead didn't come to fight against you, so you can have their daughters. And here's how you're going to do it. The next time that they come up for a festival, when you see their daughters out there taking part in the festival, go and kidnap them, seven brides for seven brothers style, and force them to marry. And the Jabesh Gileadite fathers could have nothing to say because if they ever said anything to the rest of Israel, what are you doing? You can't take our daughters. What would Israel say to them? Why didn't you come out and fight? Right? We could kill all of you for not coming to be a part of this, this civil war. In other words, we could kill all of you, including your daughters. So how about you live and just give up your daughters to these people that are part of our country, our nation? And that's exactly what the Benjamites did. Saul was born out of that tribe not a few generations later. It was a time in which all of that was going on. They had no king in Israel and everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes. And now somehow, this man, not only from the smallest, tri- the smallest family of the smallest tribe, but also of the smallest family of the most despised and smallest tribe, is somehow going to reign over Israel. And so when Samuel says to Saul... Saul, you will reign over us. Saul says, how can this be? What an amazing and unlikely rise to power that can only come about because of God's God's orchestration of the events. Well, in chapter 9, verse 22, Samuel anoints Saul as king. First, Saul's a guest at Samuel's banquet. It says, Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about thirty men. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I have that I gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. And then the cook took up the leg which was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time since I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Samuel says, There's going to be a dinner for you, Saul. It's going to be about you. In fact, you're going to sit at the head of the table and you're going to get the choice meat. And just in case there's any uh, debate as to what the best part of the the, the meat is, it is the leg in verse 24. Okay, That's, that's biblical. So Samuel and Saul talk in the morning, verse 25. When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they rose early at daybreak and Samuel called on Saul on the roof and saying, he said, get up that I may send you away. So Saul Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. So they they speak up there at the high place and then they come and and they speak in private. And here's 
what happens in verse 27. As they're going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. So Samuel's saying, What I'm about to say to you, Saul, is from God Himself. This is important. And here it is. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over His inheritance? Think about what this means to Saul. Do you remember what his servant, how his servant, Saul's servant, described prophet Samuel? It was everything, verse 6, chapter 9, verse 6, everything that he says comes true. He is a true man of God. He is a true prophet. That's how you could tell the difference between a true and a false prophet. A true prophet, everything that he predicted would come true. And now what he's saying is, Saul, you're going to be king. This is of God. This is not just Saul's wish. This is God. And then God confirms Saul's appointment as king. And wouldn't you need further confirmation? Okay, thinking about all of Saul's background, wouldn't you need confirmation? Suppose you're, you're just walking through Meyer later on this week and, and a man came up to you, confirmed your name, and then informed you that you were going to be the next king or queen of England. You might need some confirmation about that, wouldn't you? And Samuel recognizes that. And so Samuel gives Saul three confirmations or proofs that this is of God, and then he follows that with one command. So three confirmations. Here's the first one. Confirmation number one, your donkeys are found. Verse two, when you go for me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will, see, they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, What shall I do about my son? There's the first confirmation. Here's how you know that this is from God. Do you remember those donkeys that were lost? You still haven't found them, have you? No, but I know where they're at. Go to this man. You're going to find them. That's the first confirmation. When you see that, you'll know that this appointment, this anointment of you as king is real. The second confirmation, verses 3 and 4. You're going to find some men with bread. Then you will go on further from there and you'll come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. So it's not just anybody who happens to have bread or goats or wine. It's actually these three guys will have this exact amount and they will give you some of this bread. They'll give you two loaves of bread. When you see that, that's confirmation number two, that this is of God, that this anointment is of God. Confirmation number three, you will meet with the prophets, verses 5 to 7. Afterward, you'll come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city, they will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs come to you. Do for yourself that what the occasion requires, for God is with you. God here is actually equipping Saul to do something uh, that he hasn't done before, and that is to prophesy with these prophets. He's saying, the, the Spirit of the Lord is coming upon you, verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord is coming upon you. This is not talking about salvation. 
I'm going to argue as we study through the life of Saul that he is not a believer. In fact, I'll mention that here at the end of this sermon. But this, this coming on of the Holy Spirit is actually what's known as the theocratic anointing by, by theologians. And what that means is that Saul is now, he has now become, become God's appointed ruler over God's people and he's been given administrative ability to carry out that appointed rule. He can carry out these responsibilities with wisdom and strength in battle. We've already seen it with Moses and the 70 elders and Joshua and Gideon and Samson and and all the other judges that we read about. Now, it's coming on Saul. That is, the Spirit of the Lord is coming on Saul to allow them to carry out these administrative functions. And we know that this is not talking in verse 6 about salvation because in chapter 16, verse 14, the Spirit of God is taken away from him and given to David. Okay, so, so that doesn't happen in salvation. The Spirit of God is never taken away from a believer. And so we know that that's not talking about salvation. Instead, it's talking about this rule that where, where Saul is now able to be God's ruler. So he says, look for these confirmations. You're going to find your donkeys... And then you're going to go a little further. You're going to find some men. They're going to give you some bread. And then you're going to go a little further and you're going to find these prophets. You're going to talk with them. And it's at that point when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you. And here's the command I have for you in verse 8. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come to you and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. And you shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. So go to Gilgal. Here's your command. You know that this is of God because you're going to see those three proofs. But then here's what you do. Go to Gilgal and stay there for seven days until I tell you what to do. And the purpose of this is so that Samuel can come and offer a sacrifice on behalf of Saul. What we're going to find in chapter 13 is that Saul does stay in Gilgal for seven days. But Saul doesn't come by the end of the seventh day. And so Saul decides to offer sacrifices on his own. Well, in verse 9... God confirms Saul's kingship kingship in the three ways that Samuel had said. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. So what we've seen so far is just predictions. Now these are actually happening. God changed his heart and all those signs came about on that day. And then verses 10-13, through He meets the prophets. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? A man there said, now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, proverb, is Saul among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So this third confirmation is that you're going to meet the prophets. You're going to prophesy with them. And when he does that, these people that are watching, they know Saul, they've seen him before, and they're amazed that he's actually prophesying, speaking on behalf of God. And so they ask this question, is Saul among the prophets? And what the Scripture text tells us is this actually becomes a colloquial uh, a colloquial saying in Israel, is Saul among the prophets? It's just another way of, of, of saying, you know, he's gone from rags to riches, or someone who's not acting according to character. Is Saul among the prophets? In verses 14 to 16, Saul returns home. 
Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To look for the donkeys. When he saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he, Saul, did not tell his uncle about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. A lot's happened in a short period of time for Saul, soon to be king. And when he arrived home, think about it from your perspective, if you arrived home after hearing this big news and receiving confirmation that you are going to be the king, what would be the first thing out of your mouth? Hey, I'm going to be the king. Instead, they have to drag it out of him and he still doesn't tell them. So what, did you, what happened? Well, we lost the donkeys. Well, what, how'd you find them? Well, we went and talked to Samuel and he told us where the donkeys were. But nothing about the kingdom. Nothing about Saul being king. And I think that's partially because he doesn't fully have any he doesn't have full confidence in his own self that he could possibly do this. Maybe he's not completely sure of the the promise of God either. Two statements tonight as we conclude. Number one, Saul was not a believer. <clears throat> Saul was not a believer. I mentioned this earlier. I, I think this the Spirit coming on him is a theocratic anointing, not salvation. Some of you purchased the small orange commentary by Carl Laney, and I just wanted to make one observation about that commentary. Overall, I think it's a good commentary. It's concise and straight to the point. But Laney in there argues that Saul is a picture of the roller coaster life of a carnal Christian. And I disagree strongly with that statement for at least two reasons. A Christian is not really a good way to describe any Old Testament believer. So, but even if he said a carnal believer, okay, I disagree strongly for two reasons. One, I think that a carnal Christian or a carnal believer is an oxymoron. When Paul uses that statement in 1 Corinthians, I think he's using it sarcastically. We don't have time to turn there, but, but I don't think that there is a category for a carnal Christian. Number two, I think Saul shows himself to be an unbeliever. That is, he never showed any fruit of repentance. He never sought to obey God. Was he a changed man? Yes. But only in the sense that he was changed to be capable of leading a kingdom, not changed in the way that his heart had been changed toward true salvation. So I just wanted to make that that note, make that clear, and I think that will come out as we start to see the life of Saul and, and really, the Scriptures don't testify. You, know, you look at people like Lot and you say, well, that can't be a believer. But then you have testimony in the New Testament that he was a believer. That it actually burned in his heart that he wanted to get out of this place. He couldn't stand all the sin that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But we don't have any statements like that about Saul. In fact, it seems to be the, the exact opposite. Saul was not a man of God. Second statement God doesn't abandon us when we make a wrong choice. I'm thinking about it in terms of Israel. Israel was wrong for asking for a king. Now, God was going to bring a king eventually, but He's going to do it on His time and He was going to do it His way. But they didn't want to wait for God's time and God's way. They wanted it their time and their way. God didn't want them to have a king. Samuel didn't want them to have a king. But when Israel actually demanded a king, God said, okay, I'm going to give you what you've asked for. And, and when God does that, we would expect, okay, Israel, you messed up big time here. You expect God to just say, this is your baby. 
enjoy the fruit of your enjoy the consequences of your choice. But that's not our God. And that's not how God works. Despite Israel's wrong choice, God, amazingly, is still working in them and for them to bring the exact man that they needed. Now, in this case, it would be a man that they would choose, right? They look on the outward appearance, but God's going to say, but the next king is going to be my man. I'm going to show you what you want. Here's what you want. I'm going to, I'm going to work it out so he actually comes and, and is appointed as king. But this is the kind of king you want. But then I'm going to bring about my king. And that's David. He's a man not that's real beautiful on the outward side. He's not real tall. But when you look at his heart, that's the kind of guy that I'm looking for. See, God is gracious to us even when we make a wrong choice. I think that's applicable to us as well. We are not Israel, but, but I think that's the case. You, you, you can recognize that in your own life. That you've made wrong choices. You've asked for things and you've done it for wrong motives so that you can consume it upon your lust. And sometimes God says, okay, I'll give it to you. And here it is. But I'm not going to abandon you. I'm still with you. I'm still teaching you. I'm still going to use this in your life. Yes, I'm giving you what you shouldn't have. Yes, I'm giving you something that you want for wrong reasons. I'm not going to let you go. I'm still with you. Still on your side. And that's the kind of great God that we serve. He, he is constantly working out providentially. Okay? Think providentially. Think behind the scenes. Orchestrating all the events of life so that, that we are, are moving in the direction that He wants us to go so that we are starting to understand more clearly what it is that brings Him glory. And that's where we want to be. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that You orchestrate all the events of life, even the ones that, that we selfishly ask for ourselves. And sometimes we make wrong choices and maybe ask for the right kinds of things but with wrong motives. And yet You are not one to abandon us, but You are faithful and You are quick to forgive and to use even our selfish requests as means to give us ultimately greater gifts. And the greater gifts come in the form of greater sanctification. And Lord, that's what we need most. We, we want to be more and more holy. Make us that through Your Word and through the transforming power of the Spirit whom we love. In Jesus' name, Amen.